It's a God thing. Maybe you've heard that expression. That expression gets used when something happens that seems to us to have God's fingerprints all over it. Maybe we bump into something we haven't someone that we haven't seen for a long time. And it just turns out that when we meet them, they're becoming interested in God. Or maybe just when one opportunity in life closes for us, another one opens up. It could be a job. It could be a Christian relationship. Or it could be some ministry that we're able to be involved in. Whatever it is, the timing or the connection just seems so perfect that we say it has to be a God thing. But the problem with thinking that way is that we're implying all the other stuff isn't a God thing. We're making the mistake of thinking God only gets involved some of the time. The rest of the time, well, things just happen. But the message of the Bible is that everything is a God thing. And that message certainly comes across in the book of Acts. We've been saying every week, or at least it's been on the screen every week, that this book describes God at work. And our passage this morning shows us not only is God at work in all things, He is also sovereign over all things. Our passage is Acts chapter 18. And if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1114. All the way through this chapter, what we're going to find is that things just so happen in a way that advances God's plans. This chapter shows us that the big and the small things, the positive and the negative things, are all God things. I'm going to begin by reading just the first four verses of chapter 18. After this, that's after his speech to the Areopagus, which we looked at last week, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul finds Aquila and Priscilla and a way in to a tough city. Last week we looked at Paul's time in Athens. There's Athens. And now he moves about 40 miles to a much larger city, Corinth. And size wasn't the only difference between Athens and Corinth. If Athens was the equivalent of Oxford or Cambridge... Corinth is the equivalent of Las Vegas. It was known as a party city. It had a temple of Aphrodite, also known as Venus, the goddess of love. 
And that temple alone supplied the city with a thousand prostitutes. Every two years, the Ismian Games brought people from all over the world to party in the city of Corinth. And on top of the partying, it was also a major business center. Because of its position, it got trade from both the Adriatic Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. The ancient writer Horace said that Corinth was a city where only the tough survive. And into this Las Vegas of the ancient world walks the Apostle Paul. Last time we saw him, he was standing in front of the Supreme Council of Athens. We heard him holding his own with the greatest philosophers of his day. But is he going to survive in Corinth? Well, after hearing Paul the philosopher last week, we might be surprised to learn about a totally different side to Paul. He was a tradesman. More precisely, he was a tent maker. Paul had trained as a rabbi, and part of that training required him to go and learn a trade. And it just so happens that his particular trade was in great demand in the city of Corinth. I mentioned that the Ismian Games were held there. After the Olympics, they were the largest games in the ancient world. And the people who flocked to the games didn't stay in travel lodges or camper vans. They needed tents. So years before this, when Paul chose his trade, he just so happened to pick one that would give him a way in to this tough city. But knowing the trade wasn't enough. Paul needed a base that he could work from in Corinth. He needed a tent maker's shop that would take him on. And it just so happens that a married couple who were tent makers and Christians had arrived in Corinth about a year before Paul. Verse 2 says that Aquila and his wife Priscilla had recently come to Corinth from Rome. And they came because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was the Roman emperor at the time. And we know the background to this order from sources outside the Bible. Writers from the time mention the Edict of Claudius. And that edict, they tell us, expelled the Jews because of disturbances about the Christ. So what seems to have happened in Rome is similar to what happened constantly to Paul. Some Christians arrived in the city and started proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ. That's the Messiah. Some of the Jews reacted angrily, there were riots, and Claudius, rather than try and sort out the issues involved, just ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. That included, of course, Christian Jews like Aquila and Priscilla. These particular Christian Jews came to Corinth, set up a tent-making business just in time for the arrival of Paul. He makes contact with them, and now he has a shop to work in. If we stop and ask which of those details were God things, 
Well, surely the answer is they all were. As he worked in the shop, Paul would have made contact with all kinds of people. But that probably wasn't his main reason for practicing his trade here in Corinth. After all, he hasn't done this in other cities. Why would he do it here? Well, if philosophers were respected in the city of Athens, they tended to be seen as con men in Corinth. And most of them probably were. They showed up in the busy city, they dazzled people out of their money, and then they moved on. Paul does not want to be associated with that. So he shows that he's prepared to earn his way. He's not trying to take advantage of people. In fact, later on when he wrote his second letter back to the church in Corinth, Paul reminded them that unlike so many, he did not peddle the word of God for profit. So practicing his trade was both a convenient way to support himself and it was a conscious choice for the good of the gospel in this tough city. Sometime before this, when Paul had to leave Berea, he left Silas and Timothy there. But he asked them to join him as quickly as possible. Now they didn't catch up with him while he was in Athens, but eventually they do join him here in Corinth. And verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. There are two reasons for this change. The first is that Silas and Timothy brought a financial gift with them from Macedonia, probably from the church in Philippi. We know that because Paul mentions it in two of his letters. So he no longer needs the income from his tent making. And a second reason he feels free to set aside his trade is that by this time he's proved he's not a con man. He's built up enough trust and enough contacts that he can now follow those up full time. But things don't exactly go smoothly for Paul. Look at verse 6. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. You and I may have a picture in our minds of Paul as the undaunted tough guy. But that's not the picture Paul gives us of himself. In fact, in his letter to the Ephesians, he twice asks them to pray that he will share the gospel fearlessly. If he felt fearless, he wouldn't have asked them to pray for fearlessness. And here in Corinth, he is fearful. We know that because later he wrote to the Corinthian believers... I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. It might not be showing on the surface, 
But God knows what's going on in Paul's heart. And to reassure Paul, God says some amazing things to him. In verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. In those verses, God announces his sovereignty. The implication here is that before God spoke to him, Paul was thinking of shutting up and leaving. One commentator suggests that Paul was somewhat shell-shocked from the opposition he'd faced. Not just here in Corinth, but in all the places he's visited on this trip. The cumulative effect of it is taking its toll on Paul. Last week I compared Paul to a Duracell bunny because he kept on going despite the opposition. But the fact is, over time, opposition wears people down. Even the bravest and the strongest. And here, when Paul is possibly at his lowest, God promises him protection and success. First of all, look at the protection. In verse 9, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. A better translation would be, attack you with the result that you are harmed. In other words, it's not a promise that people are going to leave Paul alone. It's a promise that he won't be physically harmed. And it's not a promise that he will never be harmed again. But while he's in Corinth, God will protect him from physical harm. And then God gives the reason for this protection in verse 10. Because I have many people in this city. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean there's already a thriving church in Corinth. Paul is in Corinth to bring the good news about Jesus. And if things had been going wonderfully up to this point, Paul wouldn't be thinking of leaving. God is not talking here about men and women who've already become Christians. He's talking about those who will become Christians as Paul shares the good news. So God's message is, stay and preach, and I will protect you, because I have chosen many people in this city. And those I have chosen will respond to the good news when you preach it. What God says here is not a new idea in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 11, we read that God has granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. In chapter 16, we read that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. The book of Acts, and in fact the whole Bible, presents repentance and salvation as gifts from our sovereign God. Paul came to understand this. And it became, actually, the bedrock of his whole ministry. 
He wrote to the believers in Ephesus, God the Father chose us before the creation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Repentance and salvation are gifts from our sovereign God. And here's the thing to notice. Knowing that God is sovereign over salvation didn't discourage Paul from sharing the gospel. It was the thing that kept him going. If Paul had thought it was up to him to convert people or persuade them into the kingdom, he would have given up in despair. The reason he keeps going is he knows God has chosen people who will respond to his preaching. Paul doesn't know who those people are. But God has promised they're there. So Paul stays on and preaches the word of God for a year and a half. He does that because God has chosen to use his word to call his chosen people to repentance. Don Carson is a well-known Bible teacher. And his father was also a Bible teacher. But no one has heard of his father. His dad was a pastor in French Canada. And to give you a sense of what the place was like, in the early 1970s, there were about 6 million people in French Canada and about 35 Bible-believing churches. None of those churches had more than 50 people. Most of them had 30 to 40 people. And at that point, in the early 70s, Carson's dad had been working faithfully there for many, many years. He began his ministry in 1941. And there had been almost no response. It was just a dark, dead place, spiritually speaking. And one day, Don Carson said to his dad, why don't you go someplace in the world where you'll see more fruit? His dad turned to him and said, I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. Then he turned and walked out of the room. That was the early 1970s. After 30 years of pretty much fruitless ministry. Between 1972 and 1980, the number of churches exploded in that area from 35 to over 500. And this is Don Carson's comment on what he learned from that experience. I don't think you can serve faithfully and well and enduringly unless you believe in the doctrine of election. That's the Bible's teaching that God chooses to save us. At the end of the day, you are called to be faithful. But when you see conversions, you recognize that it's the work of God. If you believe God has many people in this place, your job is to preach until they're found. I have to tell you, if I personally didn't believe that, I wouldn't be standing here this morning. I would have quit a long time ago. Belief in God's sovereignty 
is what will keep us witnessing and serving him in tough situations. And in situations that are just normal. Normal can be tough. God has his people in every city and every village. Men and women that he has chosen before the beginning of time. And as you and I give ourselves to serve him, he will use us to bring those people into his kingdom. At just the right time, God prompted Claudius to throw the Jews out of Rome. Because of that, Aquila and Priscilla arrived in Corinth, just in time to set up their tent-making business so Paul would have a base when he arrived in Corinth a year later. Then we've just seen God promised to protect Paul as he works to call the people God has chosen in Corinth. And now, God uses a prejudiced ruler to fulfill his promise. Look at verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. Gallio was the Roman ruler in charge of the area. And we know quite a bit about him. He was the brother of the famous philosopher Seneca. He was only in Corinth for two years. And he was anti-Semitic. In other words, he was prejudiced against Jews. And that turns out to be the key to what happens here. The Jews bring Paul in front of Gallio's judgment seat, hoping that he'll either punish Paul or throw him out of the city. But Gallio couldn't care less. He just doesn't want to know. Verse 14 says he doesn't even give Paul opportunity to speak and defend himself. It's not that Gallio is supporting Paul, It's just that he looks at this as a dispute between Jews. In verse 15, since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle them out of yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. Gallio doesn't care whether Jesus is the Messiah. He just sees a group of fighting Jews and he hates Jews. So he refuses to get involved. Verse 16 says he had them ejected from the court. That includes Paul. And verse 17 underlines the fact that Gallio is not doing this because he's a fair and impartial judge. When the crowd turn on Sosthenes and beat him, Gallio shows no concern whatever. 
It's not clear whether it's the Greek crowd who beats Sosthenes or whether it's the Jews turning on their own leader because he didn't succeed against Paul. But in any case, the result for Paul is the same. Paul escapes harm because of the prejudice of this Roman ruler. Gallio just didn't want to be bothered with Jewish stuff. And yet by refusing to rule against Paul, Gallio has made it safe for Paul to stay. And so verse 18 says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. The book of Proverbs says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God had work for Paul to do in Corinth. He had promised to protect Paul while he did that work. And God was well capable of using even a prejudiced ruler to fulfill his promise. Well, after Paul's year and a half in Corinth, something slightly strange happens. Paul gets a haircut and the church in Corinth benefits. Look again at verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cancrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. That's the church in Jerusalem. And then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. It's not at all strange that Paul would get his hair cut, but the reason he does it seems a little strange. Verse 18 says, it was because of a vow he had taken. Now this is almost certainly talking about the Jewish practice of taking a Nazarite vow. The Old Testament book of Numbers describes this optional vow that people could take. If they wanted to dedicate themselves to God for a period of time, they would take a Nazarite vow. And during the time of their vow, they were not to drink anything fermented and they weren't to have their hair cut. Then when the period of the vow was over, they had their hair shaved and they took it and burnt it on the altar. But why on earth would Paul be doing something like that? Well, remember, although he's being constantly harassed by the Jews, Paul himself is a Jew. And although he's diehard about the fact that following Jewish rituals doesn't earn you points with God... Although he insists that keeping the Jewish law doesn't earn you salvation, Paul still has a Jewish heritage. And clearly, he was still comfortable expressing his devotion to God and his thanks to God in Jewish ways. 
So the situation seems to be this. When Paul was at a low ebb in Corinth, the Lord appeared to him in the vision we read about. And in response to God's promise, Paul made a vow to trust God and persevere in Corinth. He committed to let his hair grow until he left the city as a sign of that vow. Then when he finally feels his work there is done, he shaves his hair and moves on. And we might think, okay, but why is this important? It's important because Paul is now carrying around a bag full of hair. And he has committed to take that hair to the temple in Jerusalem and throw it on the altar. That will be the final stage of completing his vow. And again, let's be clear, Paul knows very well he doesn't have to do this. But he has committed to do it as a way of giving thanks to God. To us, it's a bizarre way of thanking God. But to a man with a Jewish background, in fact a trained rabbi, it was a natural way to give thanks. And more important than why Paul did it is the result. As a result of Paul's vow, Priscilla and Aquila are left in Ephesus. Paul doesn't leave them because he's fallen out with them. No, he is rushing off to Jerusalem. He's probably trying to get there in time for the Passover festival. But he leaves Priscilla and Aquila to work on planting the church in Ephesus. And that's exactly what happens. We learn later that the Ephesian church meets in their house. But what does all of this have to do with the church in Corinth? How does this benefit the church in Corinth? Well, look what happens next. Paul has rushed off with his bag full of hair. Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. And we read in verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go on to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Achaia is the larger region that contains the city of Corinth. And we learn later that it was Corinth Apollos went to. But in order for him to be a great help to the believers there, he had to have the way of God explained to him more adequately. And it just so happened that because of Paul's haircut and his hurry, Priscilla and Aquila had been left in Ephesus. And it just so happens that before Apollos tries to go to Corinth, he passes through Ephesus. When he arrives, it seems that he's already a Christian. Verse 25 tells us he taught about Jesus accurately. 
His teaching was accurate, but it was incomplete. It seems he hasn't heard about the Holy Spirit arriving in Jerusalem. And it's not really surprising that in the early days of the church, there would be people like that. People who knew the teaching of Jesus and believed it, and who knew about the resurrection too, but hadn't yet heard about Pentecost. Apollos is a gifted and effective preacher. And equally importantly, he's teachable. When Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, he is willing to be taught. You'll notice that Luke makes a point of mentioning Priscilla first throughout most of this passage. That may mean she was more gifted than her husband at explaining the way of God. But at the very least, it indicates that in their home, this husband and wife together explain the way to Apollos. And Apollos has the humility to listen and learn from them both. Even though he's already an established and powerful teacher. He's a helpful example. He shows us that pure giftedness is not enough. Unless gifted individuals are also teachable, they're either going to cause havoc or their gift is going to go to waste. It seems Apollos was a more gifted individual than Priscilla or Aquila. He may have been more effective than them when he spoke. But he's not too big to learn from them. And as a result, they are able to send him off to Corinth with a letter of recommendation. And he proves to be a great help to the believers there. Later on in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he writes, I planted the seed in Corinth, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. What these final verses of Acts 18 show us is that God is not only sovereign when it comes to making the seed of the gospel grow. He's equally sovereign when it comes to preparing the servants who are going to plant and water the seed. He got Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth at the right time to meet Paul. Then when Paul made his vow and rushed off to Jerusalem... God made sure Paul left his trusted friends in Ephesus where they could meet Apollos and give him the help he needed so God could use him to carry on the work in Corinth. Our boys have a song at home that says, God never says oops. God never slips up. Never makes any mistakes. No, God never says oops, because he's got a perfect plan. Can he do it? Yes, he can. His promises are true. He always follows through. He's our creator king. He doesn't miss a thing. That's another way of saying our God is sovereign. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians, he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. We see that here in Acts 18. 
and it is also happening in each one of our lives. You might not see it at the moment, but it is happening. If our God is sovereign at all, then he is sovereign over all. It's not possible to be partially sovereign. God is either in control or he isn't. Every detail of history is interconnected. God can't be sovereign over just some parts. It's all or nothing. And that applies to the little details of your life. Your upbringing, good or bad. Your past successes and failures in life. Even the decisions of the people around you good or bad. God is using all of it to work out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That does not mean that sin is okay. It's not okay. We are responsible for our sin. And our sin or other people's sin can bring painful consequences. But sin will not thwart God's plans. Just as Gallio's prejudice didn't thwart God's plans in Corinth. In fact, what Gallio shows us is that God uses even sin to work out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God never says, oops. Never slips up. Never makes any mistakes. That's true in your life. And it's true in the life of his church. Whether our circumstances look rosy or bleak today, we can serve God with confidence as a church. Because he has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We're going to close by praising him as we sing God of the ages and then behold our God.